from GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Heather Clancy, greeting you today from northern New Jersey, where it actually rained two days this week. Very welcome. On this week's edition, does your company have a child labor problem? Why we need to decolonize our thinking about climate solutions. And we chat with one of this year's Women in Sustainability Awards honorees, the recently retired Chief Sustainability Officer of Austin, Texas, Lucia Athens. It's June 16th, 2023, almost officially summer. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me today as co-host from across a couple of rivers is Green Biz Manager for Sustainability Content, Nathra Rajanthran. Hey, Nathra, how are you? Hey, Heather. So happy to be here. I'm really excited to be on another episode of Green Biz 350 and get to talking about some pretty interesting topics here. Okay. You like so. You got me intrigued. What do you want to talk about? <laughs> Right. So, I mean, I've had a lot on my mind, Heather. Um, Coming out of Circularity 23 was such a whirlwind, so much fun. Um, For those who are listening who attended, you know how inspiring it was. Um, For those who didn't, it was inspiring. (laughs) It was also thought-provoking and and challenging to talk about some of these things that are seemingly contradictory in a way, which I will explain what I mean by that. Um, One of my personal interests in circularity is fast fashion. Um, And I attended this really great session uh, called Pop Culture, Pleather, and um, the Effects of Fast Fashion. And in talking about, you know, that subject, the idea of pleather and vegan fabrics were on the conversation docket. And for me, as someone who's plant-based and, you know, very passionate about animal rights, I was like, yes, yes to pleather because that's what we like to see, um, something that's animal-free and cruelty-free. Um, but on the flip side of that, you know, it is plastic, and there yeah. it is a cheaper material, and mm-hmm. it is not as circular um, as other materials. So it got me thinking that you can have something that's seemingly good, um, but has negative effects. And that's a topic that is, you know, the root of the just transition and some of those elements that the Just Transition tries to address in while we make the movement towards more eco-friendly, for lack of a better word, um, sustainable products, there are costs to that. And that got me thinking, Heather, about the article that you recently wrote on um, the mining and how, you know, Mike Warner from Google said that, uh, you know, they've done some modeling and it's pretty clear that we're not going to reach net zero without significant mining. And that really got me thinking about the just transition. I'd love to hear a little bit about that article from you, the author. (laughs) Yeah, right. So this was one of the most intriguing sessions that I attended at Circularity 23 in Seattle. Um, And for those of you who were there, there were about 1,400 people. Those of you who weren't there, sorry, you couldn't be one of those 1,400 people. It was a a terrific uh, conference about the business of getting to a circular economy. And one of the most fascinating parts of this session that where I, I heard Mike Warner talk was the sort of, um, you know, I'll, I'll just put it quite candidly. I mean, mining is kind of a verboten topic in the sustainability community. It's like, no, there is no sustainable mining. 
However, in order to get the solar panels and the windmills and the turbines and the other um, materials that we need for the transition, we're not going to be able to get them without actually going out and extracting new materials from virgin sources. Um, there, there's a whole, there's a whole uh, opportunity on the side of urban mining, which is where you go and extract these materials from old computers and televisions and mobile phones, and also actually from batteries and, and also mine tailings. Like, so there's a lot of waste at mines already where you can extract things that are already above ground. But yeah, it was just one of those, just for me, an epiphany of like, wow, okay, this person, what, what he was saying was, listen, mining's kind of a dirty topic for lots of reasons, which we're going to get more of uh, in, into in a moment. But we have to look at this process and we have to figure out better ways of doing it better. We have to look at all of the different processes around this, including both the physical processes and who we use to go into mines, right? Who actually is going into those mines and, and extracting the materials. But it was just, it was just a great wake up call that underscores to the point you were making earlier, the trade-offs, right? There's so many things in the the just transition, there are going to be very difficult decisions. I was speaking with someone earlier today for a completely different segment about coal mines and how quickly you take them off the grid. And in certain places, you can't just flip the switch and turn it off, right? Because that will deprive a community of their power. That right and the right to have electricity or the right to to be you know to be able to run their equipment and so forth. So how do you do that? I mean, it's a really tough thing uh, if if community relies on that source of electricity or energy to just come in and say, oh hi, we're gonna you know we're gonna turn turn this off. You have to be thoughtful about it. Um, I'm I'm curious uh, what your thinking is on mining. I think it you know as a as a as a journalist, I've often been like a little bit leery of claims by the big companies like Alcoa and, and I'm, you know, and I'm actually naming them because they're actually doing some good things, which I actually hope to be reporting on in the future. But what's your perception or, um, I don't know, I guess bias about mining? What, what do you think about it when, when someone says that to you? The first thing that comes to mind for me, Heather, um, is mining's effects on communities, positive and negative. Um, yeah. For a lot of, you know, communities, like mining has been a generational source of income for their families or, or a trade that they have been very deeply rooted in. And, and many of those communities don't have other, um, you know, skills that are as deep rooted. So to come in here and to um, uproot a coal mine or um, a coal plant or whatever it might be um, is erasing a generations and a community's source of livelihood, unless there's significant um, training and support to help justly transition them to another industry. Um, on the flip side of that, I can think of a host of negative effects. Um, you know, we we know that it has health effects on the workers. It oftentimes is linked to a lot of um, displacement of indigenous communities, pollution of riverways. I, I, the list goes on and on. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, so it like you said, um, like you perfectly said it, it is a trade-off with these transitions that we will be making in the very near future, whether it's to net zero or to, to um, renewables, whatever it might be. I want to come back to the community thing in a moment because I know that you think a lot about that. But, but I first want to go to 
the other story, one of the other stories that I that we'd like to talk about this week, which is a really interesting contributed piece about child labor, and not just in these mines, because you know we know that in the Democratic Republic of Congo, for example, which is the primary source of cobalt, we know there's a huge child labor and slavery issue, like a child labor issue. Um, but I think what many individuals don't think about is that child labor is actually becoming an issue here in the United States. Um, there's a lot of states that are changing the way their laws um, and for for in have, having less sort of safeguards in place for hiring and lowering the age that, that, that companies can hire. And it's, it's becoming to me like one of those issues in the S part of ESG, the environmental, social and governance framework that requires more attention. Absolutely. And I think about this frequently um, because I have a really personal tie to this subject, which I'll, I will get into. But when I think about this article specifically, um, yes. And it's interesting to see the communities that these children are coming from. Um, you know, the article states that most of these children that are being employed are from Central America. And at that, they're undocumented. And this is a very, unfortunately, a very easy population to take advantage of. And many companies in the United States are doing that. And you think about these children working in food factories or slaughterhouses or auto parts manufacturing, um, the type of generational trauma that will ensue from these children not getting education and being put in these very grueling circumstances. Uh, there's plenty of social effects there and, and companies really need to tap into what this means and, and the labor force that they're using. Yeah, and this this does feed into the story that I wanna point to, which is actually something you wrote a few weeks back. So it's not like fresh for this week, but I really wanted to bring it up because I felt like it was one of those, whoa, aha kind of pieces. And the headline is, I'll just you know give it to the, to the audience here, De decolonizing the definition of technology. Reframing how we define technology could be the ultimate game changer. And this piece really is about just the way that we ignore the amazing wisdom of indigenous communities and the fact that we try to force, and I'll say we because I'm part of the we, um, our thinking that we, we, that somehow we don't think that that thinking is the smartest thinking in the room when actually probably is a lot of the time. But I want to ask you what specifically inspired you to write this piece, this very personal essay. Um, I'd, I'd love to know what the inspiration for this was. Absolutely. Um, thanks for asking that question, Heather. And sometimes I think that I can be a part of that we sometimes as well, because I, you know, function sometimes like a typical consumer, like a typical um, person who lives in modern society. And I forget to tap into some of the practices that my community back home has been practicing for years as well. And this piece really came from just the inspiration of growing up as an Indian American and visiting India multiple times when I was growing up and, and just recently this past December and understanding that there are so many ancestral practices that we ignore. Um, I told you earlier that um, you know have a very deep passion about fast fashion um, and uh, 
and child labor. As in you and... don't like it. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. As in I don't like it. Yeah. I have a deep passion on the criticism of fast fashion, <laughs> just to make that clear. Um, that's because my family comes from a part of a part of South India called Kanjipuram, and that is the textile industry, uh, like the textile capital of, I think it's the world, but definitely of Asia. And, um, you know, factories like the Intimate Fashions Factory, which supplies to Victoria's Secrets and, and certain um, other um, lingerie uh, intimate wear brands exist right in the community that um, my dad's family is from. And so, so many of our family friends and our relatives are employed there or were employed there. Um, so this topic is really interesting to me because I've seen what the effects of these large corporations coming in um, has on my community directly. And particularly when I say decolonizing technology, um, you know, these, these factories and these industries have had really, really horrible effects on a lot of the developing world. And I think that when it comes to addressing the effects such as pollution and, and even some of the social effects that this has had on um, these communities, you know, we think, well, we can just put some solar panels up, we can just get some AI technology and, and create these sort of um, very technologically machinery driven solutions. Um, but really what these communities want is to have the ability to have autonomy over their own land and their own decision-making. Um, we have traditions that are rooted in thousands of years of place-based knowledge. Um, many indigenous, one of the lessons I learned um, over the summer, I teach a course with Brown University on Indigenous Perspectives and Sustainability Leadership. And last summer, I was in Alaska and we worked very closely with the Athabascan tribes and the Dena'ina tribes of the Cook Inlet. And the their culture is so deeply, and this is across the board for many Indigenous cultures, um, including the Indigenous um, tribes of India, is their cultures are so deeply rooted in their land and place-based traditions, um, years of observation, years of understanding plants and animals and, and water patterns and soil like acidification and all these types of things. And what these communities already have is deep knowledge of the land that technology will not be able to mimic. So my piece was rooted in let's take that knowledge and view that as technology because technology is just the practice and the deep knowledge of a technique, which so many of these traditional and ancestral communities have mastered wonderfully. So we can't talk solutions to the climate crisis without talking about including these perspectives and bringing these seats to the table, uh, bringing these voices to the table. Yeah. And I want to bring us full circle back to that mining story. Yes. Because that perspective is going to be absolutely critical when we decide how to work those mines because those many of those would be mines or many of those resources that we need to get at the lithium you know and I didn't name these before these minerals like lithium and cobalt and uh, copper and these are in places which are predominantly the place of a of a community of a native community an indigenous community and the most sustainable mining operations are going to be the ones that include that community, not here's our plan, but hi, community, what should the plan be? Yes. How do we do this together? And I think that is just so critical. And I, I just don't think enough companies are thinking that way, unfortunately. And maybe 
they should be. And that's a thing. I don't think that we can halt mining altogether. As it's stated, it's pretty clear that we're not going to reach net zero without significant mining. We need those materials to continue to, you know, develop renewables and and solar panels and what have you. Um, But if we just go in and not consult with communities that have, again, had so many years of place-based traditions there, then that could have even more adverse effects on the ecosystems, the biodiversity there, um, how, you know, communities interact with that land and water. And it's a race of culture, really, if you don't incorporate the people whose entire being is based on their geography. Each year, the Women in Sustainability Leadership Awards recognizes 10 women who have demonstrated extraordinary courage, innovation, or influence in shaping lasting contributions to the field of sustainability. This week, I'm pleased to speak with Lucia Athens, who recently retired from her role as the City of Austin's first Chief Sustainability Officer. Her latest book is The Sustainability Revolutionists, Heroes and Hope for Our Planet's Future. Lucia, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. Great to be with you today, Heather. As I mentioned during the intro, you recently retired as CSO of Austin. You've established so many initiatives there focused on climate, including the passage in September 2021 of the Austin Climate Equity Plan. That plan sets the rather aggressive goal of equitably reaching net zero community-wide greenhouse gas emissions by 2040, with a strong emphasis on cutting emissions by 2030. So I love that. I think um, you've got a lot to talk about, but I wanted to ask you, reflecting on your legacy in Austin, what do you, what is your proudest accomplishment? Well, that's a great question. There's a lot to be proud of. I've been so lucky uh, working in this career and in this field. One of the things that I am the most proud of, I'd say, is green building projects that have unfolded while I've been in leadership positions, uh, both with the city of Seattle formerly and uh, now more recently with the city of Austin. But one of the things I've worked a lot on is green building policy. I worked on the creation of the lead rating tool way back when it was the 2.0 version many years ago. Oh, wow. <laughs> so so policies that are surrounding uh, lead and adopting lead, uh, Seattle was actually the first city to adopt lead. Uh, formally as part of their green building policy. And then Austin was quick on its heels before I even came to Austin. But what I'm the most proud of is what has come out of all of that work. And in particular, I'm super proud of the Austin Central Library, which is a lead platinum library by Lake Flato Architects. It's a real jewel in the crown for Austin's public buildings. It's, uh, I think visionary in the way it uh, addresses the site and embraces Lady Bird Lake that it faces. It has huge outdoor screen screen porches with fans where you can take your books out to read, which is a very Southern kind of a thing. And so, I, yeah, I would say I am perhaps the most proud of that. I was a big champion for getting rooftop solar on the project and the, the rooftop solar is integrated with shade structure on an accessible green roof. And I dare say if I had not really pushed, we wouldn't have even had rooftop solar on that project and it wouldn't have been platinum. So I'm really, really proud of that project. And anybody that comes to Austin, I encourage you to come and visit our central library. It's a magical place. So I, you, one of your big focuses is equity. That's in your, your actual climate plan, the climate equity plan. I'm curious, how is the community involved with the development of that library? 
lots of community input uh, in the process. And I would say it, it has equity baked into it in part because, you know, it's hard to get access to the kinds of rooftop views that the library offers to the general public for free. And, uh, you know, we have a lot of really lovely condominium built towers downtown, but that's not free access. So uh, the other place that equity shows up in the project has to do really with the way it's programmed, all of the free programs that are available, the integration and, and dedication of specific spaces for children and for teens that are just for those age groups, which is an important part of equity. We talk a lot about race and social justice, you know, when we talk about DEI, but sometimes we forget about age equity. Um, so yeah, it shows up in a lot of places. And uh, the, the fact that everything is very high tech in the building, uh, I think appeals to a, a broad audience and a younger audience. And you can reserve incredible meeting rooms in the building for free, which, to me, that is an incredible boon to the community. You see people in there having all kinds of meetings, startups, nonprofits, meeting in these really cool meeting rooms that have lots of technology integrated into them. Excellent. That's really cool. So you just retired, um, but I think you really haven't retired. You retired as the CSO of Austin and you have a new book out. So tell me what's next. Right. I did recently retire just in January from my chief sustainability officer position with the city after 12 years. I was their first chief sustainability officer. So I'm also really proud of just building out that office. We have an incredible team. And, uh, you know, things like the climate equity plan came out of that office and that team's work. And now they're working on a food plan, regional sustainable food plan, which is going to be super exciting. So that's one of the things that's next for that office. For me, uh, my book that you mentioned, The Sustainability Revolutionists, Heroes and Hope for Our Planet's Future, it took me quite a while to get that book done. It came out in the last fall, and now I'm kind of focused on promoting the book. So actually, I do have another job, which is I'm on it, my own publicist, <laughs> but uh, a companion piece to the book that I'm working on is, is a training curriculum and kind of a workbook that goes along with the book. The book, just to say a little bit more about it, is really intended to help a broad audience understand sustainability more fully. I had a lot of experiences working on sustainability related policies and projects and kind of realized that not everybody was coming to the table from the same place. And, you know, the triple bottom line of sustainability, the environmental, the social, slash equity community piece and the economic, what I've observed is people tend to come at sustainability from one of the three primarily. And then we all get around a table and say, hey, kumbaya, we're working on sustainability. And then we find out, oh, I don't want the same thing that person across the table wants. I don't even care about what they care about, actually, when you get right down to it. So the book is designed to help people more deeply understand the triple bottom line, all three, and to, as the title implies, help restore a sense of hope. There's a lot of bad news out there. And I think a lot of people, you know, don't want to read about sustainability and climate change because it's depressing. So this is intended to, you know, remind us how much we've already accomplished and how much more we're able, we're going to be able to do now. I love that. Thank you. Uh, I, as a journalist, yes. <laughs> I, love, I love more being able to tell stories of hope. Um, so what inspired you to focus on a career related to environmental sustainability and ESG? What what got you here in the first place? 
I'd have to say that it does kind of go back to childhood. My father, I grew up in San Antonio, Texas. My father was the chairman of the Sierra Club San Antonio chapter. And we went on lots of um, hiking and camping trips growing up. But more importantly, perhaps even than that, is my dad was leading a charge to actually stop a major freeway that was being built, uh, was being proposed to be built in San Antonio. And it it's there now. The the fight against it failed, but I really saw his championship um, for the, on behalf of the community, on behalf of our local zoo that the highway went right past and parks that it went right past, and really on behalf of quality of life for our community. And that was so inspiring to me. So, you know, I, it does kind of go back to my father and, and Sierra Club in San Antonio. And then beyond that, you know, I just, uh, I studied landscape architecture and landscape architecture really helped me understand the concept concept of stewardship. And it's been a real delight to have a career in public service, working in municipal government, because it really is a public uh, client that you're serving as opposed to, you know, maybe more a for-profit client when you're, when you're punching a clock for somebody who's a, a more narrow client asking you to design a project. Um, so yeah, I've been super inspired and to, to be able to be that champion uh, for wellness, for uh, battling climate change, for urban forests, for dark skies, for water conservation, you know, a whole myriad of things that we work on in the sustainability arena, but also trying to figure out how to balance that out, you know, with um, the needs of our community economically, affordable housing, businesses, and so forth. What would you say has been the most important factor in your success? You know, one of the things I have always fallen back on is balancing the visionary with the practical. I think of myself as a practical visionary, which may seem like an oxymoron, but I'm always thinking about the big picture, but I'm also kind of looking for what are the opportunities, you know, right in front of us that we can actually leverage uh, and get things done. Because as we were saying before, there's a lot of bad news out there. There's a lot of feelings of defeatism. So if we can accomplish, you know, just even taking one step, people tend to get inspired by that and then they want to do more. So yeah, I, I definitely feel like that has been something throughout my career that's really helped me, um, you know, move forward, accomplish things that people are excited about, that I'm excited about. And then, you know, almost like leapfrogging to the next thing all the time. What would you say is your most successful leadership habit? I think one of the important things for me has been leveraging opportunities. I mentioned it just a second ago, but you know that ability to see where the energy is flowing and move in that direction, go with that flow. There's a lot of problems out there in the world, and you can beat your head against the wall, you know, trying to shift something or change something where there's there's no appetite for that. Right. So and we can't boil the ocean. We can't do everything. So following the opportunities, sometimes it's intuition that I use in my leadership to kind of know where to go next. But sometimes it's just like knowing how to read a room. Are people really open to this? Are they really going to want to work with me? Or are they just saying they want to work on this? And then they're going to kind of sabotage things later because they're really not on board, truly. So, you know, some of it's that emotional intelligence, some of it's intuition. Got it. I love that. Thank you. Mentorship. I love mentorship. I love being mentored myself by younger people, peers, et cetera. 
Um, I know you mentioned before the fact that equity is not just about, you know, race or demographics. It's about age and, and, and lots, so many different fac factors and, and looking at everyone in that, you know, from a level playing field approach. When you think about mentoring um, and, and the opportunities you've had to mentor the next generation of leadership, how has that changed your own career? So like, what have you learned from the people that you've mentored or how has that process really um, changed or influenced your career trajectory? That's a really great question, Heather. Mentoring is so important, right? The next generation is going to carry on all this work. And one of the things that's been really cool in my work with the Office of Sustainability is having uh, a fairly young leaning staff and it's a small office. And so it's very flat, the structure is very flat. Um, the ability to have conversations and hear opinions from a very diverse group of talented people with uh, you know all kinds of different backgrounds. And so, you know, I think that we've mentored in both directions to some degree. I've learned a lot from younger people and I'm happy to, you know, provide them guidance and input. But at the end of the day, I feel like I was very much challenged at times by some of the younger people on our staff. We did a lot of work rolling up our sleeves on diversity, equity, and inclusion. We read uh, we read a book on uh, white supremacy culture in organizations. It's actually a, just a, a report. And it was like a book club where we all read it and talked about it. And some of the stuff in that publication was so challenging for me as an executive in the organization. It asked questions about, you know, who gets to make decisions, having a uh, culture where we worship perfection, where we rely more on data than on stories. Some of those things were very, very challenging for me. And I'm very grateful that younger people in our office brought forward that reading. And I, I really learned a lot from it, took it to heart. And we also created some programs where we brought in younger voices and mentored some younger people. There's a youth climate council that's uh, in its second year now and continuing on. There's also a climate ambassadors program composed of mostly people of color, a uh, very diverse group. And those are people that, you know, bring back intelligence to government officials that they often are not able to get because a lot of people don't want to talk to government. So we, I feel like I've learned in so many different ways um, through the mentoring process, whether it's direct mentoring or through the creation of some programmatic initiatives that bring information to us in a completely different way than we typically do in government. You asked before, too, one other thing I'm going to add, Heather, you were asking about how we created the climate equity plan. Typically, what happens in government in my career experience is we either hire a consultant to create a plan and then we put it out for public comment or staff creates a plan. And then we also put it out for public comment. Climate equity plan was created in a very different way. It was a co-creation between community stakeholders and staff, a very diverse group of staff from many different departments, a very diverse group of community stakeholders. That was not an easy process to come to agreement with everybody uh, on exactly what was going to end up in the plan, but it was so powerful because it really is the community's plan. It's not just the city's plan. And I think that's powerful. Very powerful. Thank you for all those awesome examples. Um, one final question for you. What advice would you give to anyone of any age who is pursuing a career related to corporate climate action? So like I, I represent companies 
you know, we're, we see lot, lots more people trying to get into this field. What advice would you give them? There are a lot of people trying to, to get into this field and that's the good news, right? We, we need all that talent. One piece of advice I guess I would give is just to network a lot. That's one of the things I've done throughout my career. I love the people doing this work. It's fun to get to know them. It's enjoyable. I'm always learning something. And so the networking, the, the advice around networking would be don't just get in it for yourself. Get in it for something bigger than yourself. And sometimes when you're networking with somebody else, you can ask them, like, how can I help you? It isn't just about how they can help you, but it's a two-way street, right? And I think that feels really differently to people that might be a little bit more established in their careers and they're getting a barrage of requests from people to get together with them. But you can actually, you may not believe it, the young person out there, but you can help them too. So ask those questions. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining us on the podcast, Lucia. This has been awesome. It went by way too fast and I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Exactly, way too fast. You just heard from Lucia Athens, who recently retired from her role as the city of Austin's first chief sustainability officer. And she is one of this year's Women's Sustainability Leadership Awards honorees. Well, that's a wrap for the week. Thanks to Nathra Rajentran for lending her voice to this episode. It was great to have her. Joel McCower will be back next week, but I won't be. He'll have a mystery co-host because I don't know who it is yet, but stay tuned because you will have another edition of Greenbiz 350. Meanwhile, I encourage you to sign up for our newsletters at www.greenbiz.com forward slash newsletters hyphen subscribe. We have seven or eight of them. I'm not remembering right now. I'm especially fond, though, of Climate Tech Rundown, which offers you two editions each week of our groundbreaking climate tech coverage. Signing off for now, I'm Heather Clancy. Take care and be well. Thank you.